for coming. Uh, I'd like to thank the Department of Anthropology as a whole for having me here uh, today. Uh, it's a great honor and a great pleasure to be here. Uh, in my talk today, I'm going to present the project I've been running over the last 14 years, and now it will be published as a book titled as The Invasion of Piracy. Uh, my ethnography followed a commodity chain that was formed in the 80s when Chinese cheap goods connected China to Brazil uh, via Paraguay. The goods were diverse and included fake brands, but they were mainly unbranded shoddy products, electronic devices, perfumes, toys, clothing, tiny things, and trinkets in general. For many years, these kinds of products were simply classified as cheap and shoddy. They were made in China, exported to Paraguay by Chinese migrants, and finally smuggled to Brazil by Paraguayan low-income traders who sold them into the informal street markets. However, economic, uh, major economic changes in the 21st century or what I call as the post-trips and bricks era, would change the course of things, affecting the heart of that chain. On the one hand, we have the emergency of new players in the South based on economic growth, such as Brazil and China, and the group of BRICS. On the other hand, there is an intensification of pressures from the North to apply legal and regulatory instruments worldwide. Thus, Brazil and China are internally and externally forced to adopt an international agenda of economic development, especially in the field of intellectual property. The enforcement of IP rights became stronger, especially after the TRIPS agreement by WTO. Piracy was pointed by Interpol as the crime of the 21st century. In this way, a new discourse emerged in the world, labeled as piracy, which criminalized people and goods. So the trips and bricks era has had a dramatic impact on this chain. In the course of my fieldwork, I witnessed this process of enforcement come into effect. From an anthropological perspective, my work discusses the impacts of such pressures from global forces on the local level, mediated by nation states and their ideology, policies, and power. I shall present this process from the lens of ethnography. But first, let me explain the gears, the drivers of that chain. The open door policy implemented by Tan Xiaoping in China in 1978 chose the Quantong province as a window, a point of contact with the outside world, especially through its special uh, economic zones like Shenzhen, where I did my field work. China's development model, uh, or better, the first uh, Chinese uh, model uh, of development was based on mass production of consumer goods under an intensive labor system which resulted in the offer of unbeatable prices. Made in China goods spread on an excep exceptional scale, but especially in developing countries. 
the whole of China definitely created something new in the so-called road system, empowering south-south connections. However, and this is something uh, really important to understand uh, the chain I was studying. Uh, the label made in Taiwan arrived in South America before made in China. In exchange for financial support, Paraguay has maintained diplomatic links with Taiwan since 1957, promoting mainly opportunities in migration and trade. When the breach of friendship, or ponte da amizade in Portuguese, that unites Brazil and Paraguay was inaugurated in 75, thousands of Taiwanese migrants came to trade goods made in Taiwan uh, in the Paraguayan city of Ciudad del Este on the border with Brazil. Oh, uh, in the 80s and in the 90s, uh, as quantum production has its boom, thousands of Cantonese left their home to sell abroad the commodities that the country was beginning to produce. So the Cantonese joined the Taiwanese in, uh, in Paraguay, and along with Koreans and the Lebanese migrants, helped to cre create one of the largest free trade zones in the world, selling cheap consumer goods. In Brazil, at the turn of the century, economic instability was reflecting the very high levels of unemployment, with around 50% of population in the informal economy. Reflecting this economic setting, informal street markets exploded in large Brazilian cities, in part enabled by opportunities of offered by Paraguay. Cheap products for Brazilian consumers who for many years had no access to the so-called imported goods. Starting in the 80s, Brazil's low-income traders began to travel to Paraguay <coughs> Italy to buy low-value goods from China, which they smuggle uh, into Brazil. This kind of, of movement was, was called anti-smuggling, anti because there are so many people uh, bringing, bringing just tiny portions of, of commodities, but the, the total amount was, was huge. So uh, this uh, China-Paraguay-Brazil connection worked well for more than two decades until this course of intellectual property became a powerful ideology and the practice of our time. Oh, in this picture, uh, you can see the movement of the Ponte d'Amizade, the Brit of Friendship. Uh, every day, uh, thousands of people cross the border uh, for uh, 12 hours uh, bringing and, and crossing goods uh, from Paraguay uh, to Brazil. This is in the 90s, uh, the booming of that time. I did ethnography in Porto Alegre from 1999 to 2004. Porto Alegre is, is the capital of the state of Rio Grande do Sul in the south of Brazil. Its street market was composed of around 500 vendors legalized by the local authorities but still in the realm of an informal economy. They traded in fixed place and they had the fixed stalls. This place was called the camelodromo. Uh, camelo uh, means street vendor in Portuguese and camelodromo is the place where uh, they trade. On the margins uh, of camelodromo, the, the, the marketplace, were thousands of illegal traders called caixinhas 
caixinhas in Portuguese means little box. They they didn't have a stall, so they they used to trade on little box that they uh, they they used just for that day. For many decades, Camelodrum was a place of a bazaar economy based on face-to-face -face interactions, bargain, and honor. In that market, a capitalist entrepreneurial lifestyle was applied in raw form, based on strong competition and exploitation. In the first day of my field work, the first words I heard were, welcome to the jungle. As my king informed Carminha said, if I can eat my colleague, I do it. If he offers 10 bucks for this toy, I will offer six right in his face. I don't care. And she used to do that. <laughs> as soon as they had accumulated some capital, the traders would invariably hire without any formal rights an employee. This employee would have to refer to the hire all the time as a boss. Chico, Carminha's husband, would typically pay $2 for someone to carry his bags across the border in Paraguay. En route, the 11-year-old boy would continually using the term boss. Besides, as soon as they could, the, the, the traders in general, they set up their own stalls. Everyone wanted to be a boss, as uh, Chico explained to me. If I have to be a slave, I will be my own. Informal relations and informal economy, uh, I know that these concepts are, are extremely problematic, but just, just to have some, uh, uh, some concept to start the discussion. Uh, so informal relations and informal economy was part of everyday life. The traders worked 12 or 15 hours a day, seven days a week, they faced everyday sun, rain, wind, extreme cold or hot temperatures. Uh, they had their own credit system. For example, if one trader would lend $100 to another, he or she would give back 200 the following week. They had no bank accounts and accept cash only. Anything earned was spent on immediate bills. They didn't save money uh, either. They had no pension plan, health insurance, or any kind of social or labor rights. Most couldn't write and read, and consequently, the universe of paperwork and records was something that alarmed them. They also distrust in their rights as citizens. This became very clear uh, to me when we were, we were violently mugged on a journey to Paraguay. I insisted that we should report the assault to the police, but they didn't want to do that, as they thought they, were, they had no right to complain to the state, given that they were smugglers, uh, they were off to law. In this hostile context of their working lives, small group solidarity was vital. It allowed the emergency of creative arrangements of network and, and, and kinship systems. I have observed uh, at least two models of symbolic kinship that were being put in practice beyond blood and affinity. Uh, they used to refer to, uh, to these families as the family of street and the family of roads. They had flexibility in these arrangements 
being closed to one or another family according to the moment, uh, for, for at least two, uh, two decades. Just one example of the importance of social networks and solidarity. Working in the streets, they needed each other for ordinary things like, like going to the bathroom. This activity, perhaps one of the most banal for the majority of people, was a real drama for the traders. They depended on several personal relations and arrangements, ranging from permission of a shop owner to use the toilet to the goodwill of a nearby colleague to look after the stall. As uh, there were no public toilets there, many of them died with serious bladder problems, such as cancer. Favors should be returned and repaid, and repaid in a very short time. The bones were ephemeral. Friends quickly transformed into ungrateful enemies, and the ties were made and unmade constantly. Despite, uh, despite being an environment of precarious competition, work conditions, and above all, social stigma that marginalized those involved, this system worked well for many, many years, especially because they believed in the importance of their, their, their social role. Their selves were built on a strong morality of above all honesty. In this sense, uh, let me give just one example. One interesting thing that I observed in the field was the daily small rituals of cleanings. Through them, they used to get rid of the dirt in symbolic and practical terms. They cleaned the stalls, put perfume, but all the time had a shower in the middle of the journey to Paraguay right after uh, crossing the police station. And they used to say all the time, I am clean. Even being under informal economy, carrying smuggling, there was a room to consider themselves as honest people because they differentiate uh, smuggling from piracy. Smuggling was considered something important to provide cheap and consumer goods for society. The changes in the global uh, IP system began to felt in the camelodromo after the 2003 when Brazil was added to priority watch list of USTR. The main focus of Brazilian public policies was the Brazil-Paraguay border and the camelodon, the street and the formal markets as well. The actions were uniformly directed at a broad group who not necessarily or not clearly were violating IP rights because as I said, they were uh, trading uh, many types of, of products, not necessarily uh, uh, fake goods. But for, uh, for the authorities, the most important fact was simply beginning to prove to Washington that they were taking action. One aspect that deserves our attention, and this is something that I'm uh, uh, working uh, right now, is how this discourse on piracy was imposed and incorporated from the top and down. There is a chain of information and power uh, that I, I have analyzed the reports of USTR and the Interpol. And it's really clear that Brazilian authorities began to copy the same discourse, even employing the same words on crime and informal economy, and associate them to organize the crime. 
For example, in one operation that aimed to clean up seats for the road cup, one police uh, official declared, piracy is the, crime, is the crime of the century. You can't allow yourself to have a romantic view of, of the camelodromes or the street vendors. The majority of them are looking to make big profits, committing tax fraud, contraband, money laundering, falsifications, and crimes of many orders. Well, if you observe the discourses, they are employing exactly the same words, and it, it began precisely in 2000 and 2003. Based on the idea of crime, the crackdowns on camelodon became more and more violent through a police force. This is the camelodromo, the, the marketplace of street vendors. This is the, this is Caixinha, they, they work on little box, the, the illegal informal, uh, informal, uh, informal vendors. Uh, and this is a camelo, a street vendors legalized, but uh, anyway, uh, work in the realm of informal economy. So this, uh, this is the scenario of, from 2003. The word guerra means war. So they were describing a scenario of war and violence and, and uh, really conflictive. Prior to the 2000s, the camelodrome goods were considered just cheap and low quality products. The notion of piracy was being posed but the traders did not consider their merchandise fake goods. They had their own authenticity classifications. So they had to rethink about the notion of piracy within their old classification system. Uh, they, 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 they divided the products between good things and bad things. For the informants from the legal area of the camelodromo, Good things were those bought in a shopping mall in Paraguay, sold at fixed store in Porto Alegre, and that mainly would work. Bad things, on the, on the other hand, would be sold by the caixinhas from the illegal points uh, and bought from a street vendor in Paraguay, not in a shopping mall. Mr. Mario, uh, for example, explained to me that his Disney Disney toys were not fake since they had bought them in a shopping center in Ciudad del Este, since they had a label and had received a sales receipt. When I then asked Dona Diva uh, what piracy was, she replied, ah, piracy is everything that Caixinha sells. You can see here, that they used, the Caixinhas used to sell the super bonder and the small things, really small and cheap things. The traders built themselves on the value of their commodities in a relation uh, to their clients. They also kept their own conceptions of intellectual property, which were not necessarily connected to the hegemonic norms of the global system, but related to local levels, moralities, and belongings. As the enforcement got worse, they reclassified their notions. For example, as the large tobacco companies lobbied the Brazilian government, the first year of the border checks focused heavily on the fake contraband cigarettes from Paraguay. As uh, Chico explained to me, piracy 
e-cigarettes. These things that Caixinha sell. They, uh, the police, don't bother with my products because my products are good things. In some, facing this process that criminalized people and goods, uh, they had to reorganize their moral regimes toward people and goods. I began to make trips to Paraguay with the traders precisely in 2003 when Brazil was classified, uh, uh, was put in the list, watch pri uh, priority watch list by USTR. Oh, this is the, uh, I was crossing at this moment uh, the, the, the border between Brazil and Paraguay. This is the bridge of friendship. And this is, these are the buses that we, we used to travel. Uh, in, in, uh, in, during the return, the bus was full, completely full of goods and there was no space for us in general. But this, this was part of the, the, uh, of the process. It was part of the routine of my field work to be caught and arrested by the police on the return trips because of the context that started in 2003. The round trips lasted around 40, 40 hours. The traders used to say that they were robbed by two sets of thieves. The professional thieves on the outward journey and the blood-sucking thieves, the police, on the return. <laughs> The coach left us on the Brazilian side of the border and we crossed the bridge of friendship by mototaxi at 6 a.m. The traders rushed to the shopping malls run by immigrants and had to be back at the coach by midday. The coach waited on the Brazilian side of the border and each trader had his or her own strategy for negotiating this way, uh, this way back into Brazil. Crossing the bridge was the tensed moment of the journey. The traders took a van full of products and squeezed they held, they held hands and began to say the Lord's prayers for the police to let them pass. I don't know how to pray, so it was a really embarrassing moment because I had to, <laughs> to, to hold my hands and, and, they, and they were looking at me fixed and expecting that I... That, uh, that I started to pray. Very embarrassing. <laughs> but I pretended well. <laughs> a border a policeman told me, oh, sorry. From 2003 to 2005, the border checks became stronger to the point of managing to stop and find lines of coaches leaving the breach of friendship. The relation with the border police was becoming increasingly conflict-ridden and aggression intensified on both sides. A border policeman uh, told me, if uh, you, you cannot feel sorry for them, if, if I could strangle a smuggler, I would, because they are all sons of bitches. In 2005, the new custom house was inaugurated. It allowed stopping a much higher number of border crosses. They hired new employees, who received courses on piracy and talks from companies like Adidas, invested in information technology to trace uh, vehicles, etc. <coughs> Movement on the border fell sharply, leaving a large number of people unemployed, especially in the context of the border. So this is the, 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 the usual movement of the border uh, before 2003, always this is 
this is before the breach of friendship, so it could uh, um, we could spend three hours uh, waiting to cross the border, three, four, five, depend on the day. But this is the result of this is the result of the police checks. They 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 began to to stop bus by bus. Oh, this is uh, the effect of uh, a post trips era. So traveling with the traders to Paraguay in 2003 and 2004, I began to have contact with Chinese community. From 2005 to 2006, I was in Ciudad del Este in Paraguay to study that community. My main informant was Lili Chan, then 35 years old, who had come from rural Quantong with the help of a Taiwanese uncle already in Paraguay. Coming from a situation of extreme poverty, she arrived in South America through the so-called Chinese mafia. They, 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 the Chinese migrants refer to this group as, as, as mafia as well. Uh, uh, the Chinese mafia provided the money for the, 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 the journey in exchange for long-term commission payments. With her husband and her son, She set up a store in Ciudad de Les, which sold wholesale to traders, and another store in Foz do Iguaçu that sold retail to tourists. She traded low-cost branded cosmetics and branded trinkets and some fake French-branded perfumes. She had no clear idea if, if the, the perfumes were fake, She just ordered a little of everything, a container with a little of everything from a Taiwanese importer. She had gone uh, from a life spent hungry in China to having a car, a van, renting two stores. In addition, she managed to send money to her mother in China once a year. Like the majority of children of the immigrants, Lily Sons studied in a Taiwanese school. The cable TV was from Taiwan, as uh, were the newspaper, festivals, and the other institutions for the community. This process are named Taiwanization of everyday life. The Taiwanese were immigrants allowed legal entry because of the diplomatic relations and therefore had several rights. The mainlanders were illegal Uh, most of them, and like Lily, depended on Taiwanese since they controlled several community spheres. The divisions between mainlanders and Taiwanese was reflected in the very conceptions of commodities they sold. As I was told by Mr. Ma, a 60-year-old Taiwanese who sold decorative goods. It's very similar to the discourse of the legal and illegal street vendors in Brazil. The problem is the people from China. Mao Zedong said that the religion was not allowed. A person without religion is heartless. They think they can steal other people's brand. Piracy happens only among mainlanders, and this was a common discourse among the Taiwanese. Despite the frictions, conflicts, and inequalities within the community, when it became to the contrast with Brazilians and Paraguayans, the discourse and community shifted toward the positivity. Many of the male, male migrants, as soon as they arrived, developed relations with Brazilians or Paraguayan women. 
the disastrous love affairs were often mentioned as an example of what not to do. So marriage between uh, Chinese here, including between Mailanders and Taiwanese, was encouraged. One, the editor of a local newspaper told me, the Brazilian woman take all your money. And she said it to me, and I'm Brazilian. Uh, every day it's a new shoes, a new perfume they want, just want to consume. They just think about today. They spend everything, and that's why I'm broke now. To Chinese, the Paraguayan authorities were seen as agents whose only purpose was to extort money. Many of the workers learned to, uh, to speak Mandarin, while many immigrants spoke neither Spanish nor Portuguese, uh, even uh, after 20 years. One day I saw a scene in which a Paraguayan authority asked for a kind of tax from a Taiwanese migrant. As they had an argument, the trader said to me, never trust a Paraguayan, they just want to suck you dry. The government employee pretended not to hear anything. A short while later, uh, he turned to me and said, take this dollar. And I asked why, and he replied, because it's really hot today, buy a Coca-Cola. Aren't you doing research? And I said, yes. Well then, all students are poor. Take this dollar, get some refreshment, and then you always remember that a Paraguay helped you. <laughs> Through me, he responded the attacks from the, from, the, uh, from the shop owner, avoiding speaking with him directly because he felt humble compared to the Chinese who he considered rich. This ordinary scene, in fact, shows tense hierarchical relationship marked by stereotypes and distrust on both sides. Thus, the community, despite its internal disputes and the original political and geographic divisions, was seen, uh, I mean, in the level of discourse, of course, in discourse for a foreigner, Brazilian, as seen as a secure space of relationships, relationships and belonging a circuit where Chinese could cultivate a romantic and ideal view, vision of China. Many migrants emphasized the fact that Chinese saved money and worried about the family's future. I know that in general liter literature on Chinese migration, this is really deconstructed as something really uh, stereotypical. But at the same time, the, the, the migrants uh, themselves were using this discourse in contrast uh, with me. Uh, I often received Confucianism lessons about the importance of harmony, family, saves, and hard work. But solidarity emerged in the networks of transnational kinship, not among the community. The migrants did not invest in Paraguay, but in China. The Chinese family was, therefore, the place of emotional and financial investment whose return was expected in the, long in the long term. I know that's really complicated as well to, to affirm this kind of general view on Chinese community. I'm, I'm just describing what I found in, in the field, not, not as uh, the whole field of Chinese diaspora. In fact, although, the, uh, although this is a common feature in, in, in some other Chinatowns across the world, I think that these features become even more pronounced on the border in a context of intense, intense 
enforcement that indicated an eventual uh, end of that market and the need to migrate once again. Many immigrants were aware that the border was a space in process of change and they themselves were in a moment of transition. Avoiding, uh, perhaps avoiding inter-ethnic inter relations, focusing on a former kinship networks and cultivate an ideal China was a rational strategy in that context. As I described earlier, border checks intensified after 2003. When I was leaving the field in Paraguay in 2006, Lily had already closed her store in Paraguay. On my last <laughs> visit in 2011, she had already left the city. With the diminution of the flow of Brazilian traders, the need to migrate again became a reality for many people. The number of immigrants fell from 20,000 to 10,000 between uh, 19, uh, 1996 and 2006. Ciudad de continues to be an exciting commercial center but is no longer the best source of supplies for small traders throughout Brazil. The trips became dangerous because of the robberies and it has become very difficult to cross the border with commodities. The Paraguay government authorities who can interfere little in the, in the custom co control activities publicly denounced the rights, uh, denounced Brazilian actions complaining of tyrannical attitude that humiliates all Paraguayans. Following the chain, I moved to Shenzhen uh, at the end of 2006 in order to do ethnography in the factories. I took with me names of contacts of informants from Paraguay. They didn't respond to my message, forcing, uh, forcing me to establish new networks. As I had no social connections or punchy, in China, it would be very difficult for me to gain access to the factories. Uh, but things changed when my Chinese teacher offered to be my translator. In response, she allowed me to enter her social networks. Fei Fei, 33 years old at that time, was from Beijing and was engaged to a police officer from Shenzhen, whose career had been given a boost by Fei Fei's father a general in the Chinese army, to whom he has consequently very grateful. The police officer, called Wang, was 35, young, good-looking, and successful. Fei Fei told me that he had rapidly saved a million yuan throughout his influence and, and Quanxi. Uh, Wang, honoring the debt to his future father-in-law, promptly met his fiancée's request and introduced me to a network of businessmen. <laughs> Through then, I was able to visit a number of factories where I found uh, a production system organized and formalized within Chinese law. A factory, uh, a factory pro produced toys for a European brand company that had outsourced its production. They also used the project design to make cheaper and unbranded, unbranded versions to sell other supplies. I also visited a factory that legally produced watch parts. Uh, they sold the items to, uh, and, and, and genuine parts. It wasn't a, a factor of fake, uh, fake uh, watches. 
but they sold the items to particular groups who assembled the parts and put the brand uh, name on them. Anything from Rolex to Dolex. Copies, replicas, fakes, and unbranded trinkets were mixed within Chinese universe of cheap goods. I have no time here to explain all the models of production that I found in the field, but you can discuss further. Um, so, meaning that recognition of violation to intellectual property law is not clear. Uh, to, to gain access to this universe, I had to take part of in various rituals of making Quan Shi Shui in China, construct and cultivating social relationships. I participate of banquets and karaoke parts held by one and his network of businessmen, in which both material goods, drinks, teas and cigarettes, and the material favors helping smooth off bureaucracy were exchanged. At one of these banquets, one um, who had just been given a rare tea set by a businessman told this businessman that uh, he was using his contact to speed up the process of legalization, legaliz legalizing w uh, one of his factories. Uh, in countries like Brazil, this is fairly well known in the state of affairs, except that there is no embarrassment in showing this fact to a researcher. On the contrary, was, was, was very proud and asked me to photograph the event and the moment when they were exchanged gifts. The career of the public officer had been helped by Fei Fei's father. Now he had helped some businessmen with whom he also had Quan Shi base, or better Tong Shan Quan Shi, meaning that the connection was based on links from the same hometown. This was not seen as corruption by then at all, but as emotional exchange with practical ends. Corruption, as one uh, of them told me, involving, uh, involving giving money to someone unknown in exchange of favor. Um, I don't want to judge here, I think, uh, if it is corruption or, or not, but uh, this, there is a long discussion uh, in Quan Chi if this is corruption or not, and from. Uh, uh, especially between cultural anthropologists and, uh, and the sociologists. In the post-Mao era, power relations between the market and the state were becoming more equal and horizontal. Local authorities and businessmen are united not only by mutual interests, but also feel that it is a part of a wider project of national development. In the context of my research, the fake market was described as an important phase in the country's growth rather than an illegal activity. <coughs> the word piracy and falsification did, didn't provoke any embarrassment. People explained to me all the levels of grade of piracy, a law, b law, c law, and Shanghai copy. They are, they are very proud, everybody uh, was very proud to explain the system and the importance of the system. But now this has changed uh, a little bit. Factory owners and sellers showed me the, their products without any fears that I would denounce them. It was an open question. There is an uh, anecdotic uh, uh, scene of my field work. My first day doing a field work in a big shopping mall that, uh, that sold fake brands in China. Uh, when the police was approaching, I, I start to say, police, 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 and they said, no, no, it's all right, it's all right, relax, because I had this, 
uh, this feeling, uh, this trauma from, uh, from our past field work. Uh, to use the intensive, the use of intensive labor, labor uh, has also been described as positive and essential to the nation, the nation's fast growth. There is a certain standard response, response in claiming that the kind of labor and tax system idealized in the West would not have attained such a quick pace uh, of growth, since the low prices are not only sustainable under Chinese uh, conditions. This again is another long discussion among some, uh, between some sociologists and, and some cultural anthropologists. Uh, this is the some kind, this um, typical ideological discourse on nationalism that I found on, on my field. One informant, Shan, a 36-year-old businessman, used Tang Xiaoping's famous phrase, it doesn't matter if the cat is white or black, as long as it catches mice, to explain China's economic boom. For him, and he, he used to uh, explain to me, imitation market is the black cat, or fake market is the black cat, which nobody finds beautiful, but achieves uh, its aim just as well as the white cat. The question of intellectual property rights doesn't seem to be a problem to him. The imitation market is a problem for the other countries, not for China. All countries want to come to China to benefit from our advantages and prices, but don't want to assume the consequences of this. Being in China means being subject to the risks. If you don't like here, just leave. Generally speaking, intellectual property rights were thought to be an outside concept and a problem for the other countries. In this fine-tuned discourse on what is good for China, the fate market and its, its intensive labor regime was socially legitimated. In the interviews, uh, this would be followed by the narratives on the center of humiliation, superpopulation or starvation, and how China was being to rebuild through the system of production. On the other hand, the informants uh, were also eager to stress that this mode of a production is just a stage of development which should come to an end when China led achieved high levels of social, uh, social uh, welfare. Here it's important to observe that over the recent years, the global enforcement of intellectual property rights has also affected China, especially in terms of its export uh, ambitions. China has been classified as priority, priority, priority watch list since the beginning, but uh, uh, they, they didn't do anything to, uh, uh, to be removed from the list. It seems it was not a problem until the nation changed the course of its development model, uh, not anymore based on production of mass consumer goods, but in high technology uh, and innovation. The 2020 goals announced by Quantong emphasize in, in first place the region's role uh, as a center of high technology. China's new development model now involves a, techno, a technical nationalism. To obtain the credibility needed to export this type of product, the hegemonic discourse of intellectual property needs to be observed, meaning that there is uh, uh, there is a problem only for, uh, for this piracy is not a problem of the others anymore. 
the, nation, the national, national discourse is changing. In the, uh, this end in mind, the IP institutions linked to the central government were recently created. After China joined WTO in 2001, the official Chinese news agency Xinhua launched a media campaign on piracy. In the official media, media in, uh, in 2002, there were around 400 news on, on intellectual property, compared with 2,000 news in 2012. Factories and, and the shopping centers uh, have increasingly faced a crackdown, and of course, this is published internationally, since, like in Brazil, it's more important to produce goods, good reports than to eliminate what is taken as piracy. In this way, I have been working with the idea of enforcement as a performance and the public show in the, real, in the realm of intellectual politics. Uh, the incorporation of this uh, new office central government discourse by local authorities is far from automatic. The intimate relationship between entrepreneurs and the local authorities, as I saw in my field, is still a feature of contemporary China. The last time I went to China, however, in 2012, they, the fake marks were a bit more he, uh, hidden. People were more cautious about approaching the subject. Uh, though they also told me that, paradoxically, they had never copied so, uh, so much as today. All the indicators are that the production of cheap branded and unbranded goods and the production of high technology work together in the 21st century China. To finalize this project, this ethnographic project, I returned to the Camelodum in 2009. Since I left the field in 2005, I could follow um, from the news, uh, from China, from Paraguay, or from, uh, from London, the environment in these streets got worse with bigger interventions from the local authorities. The media outlets reported daily on the mafia of street vendors that caused the violence and disorder in the city, or were in the downtown. After nine years, I found my former informants not on the street any longer, but formally located in a shopping center. 3,000 traders had been removed from the streets to shopping malls as a result of a public-private policy, now legalized they were forced to deal with a formal bureaucracy, bank accounts, credit card. Uh, they received microcredit and workshops from national institutions eager to educate them on how to run a business. The traders were very excited with the opportunity, but the policymakers again ignored the very basic fact that most of them didn't know how to read and to write. The traders collapsed both financially and physically. Besides, the former symbolic ties of kinship based on the neighborhood were broken. But on the other hand, some of the traders found a new way to make money. The replacement of shoddy products sold in the streets for expensive fake brands. <laughs> now Porto Alegre is full of counterfeits brought directly from Sao Paulo. Ironically, this policy was praised in the Washington reports once again uh, for adopting the model city free of piracy, which now is being adopted by other Brazilian cities. This is a clear example of how the intervention of, of this course on piracy, instead of vanishing it, 
literally created piracy. This is some of it. Uh, the, the, so this is the the new shopping mall, low income shopping mall, and how they 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 had credit card now and, and things and formal bureaucracy. So the prices they they had. Uh, this is the website, and this they they received many many prizes as city uh, as a model of city free of piracy. So uh, finalizing. Uh, just, just to end. One of the features uh, of the chain was it, its capacity to deal with legal and illegal formal and informal regimes. Uh, the individuals active within the system have their own singular notions of intellectual property or, more precisely, of the authenticity of goods based on local moralities or the state ideology that are not necessarily related to the larger corporations' notions. Nonetheless, the forces of the global north responded in the 21st century by shaking the system and spreading a global message on the dangers of piracy. As I stressed before, this notion was imposed top-down uniformly within universe that was actually plural. However, it's important to observe here that the pressures from above were endorsed by the target country themselves. On the one hand, the two ends of the chain, China and Brazil, by attempting to position themselves as emerging economies, began to react uniformly in the protection of intellectual rights, at least in terms of official discourse and performance. Here uh, it's important to note the role of MEG events Road Cup in Brazil and Olympic Games in China uh, in the enforcement as a performance to present the, na the nation uh, to outside. In this context, Paraguay found itself squeezed between giants of the South. On the other hand, margins of interpretation exist in relation to the pressures from, uh, from above, these margins of interpretations of the state. It indicates uh, very distinct and, I would say, even opposed practice in relation to uh, enforcing piracy in China and Brazil. For diverse historical and cultural reasons and political and economic interests, enforcement has been much softer in China than, than Brazil, which has made heavier use of police violence. I conclude that despite the fact that the enforcement models adopted by China and Brazil are quite opposite each other, in both cases, I mean, on the local level, not on the official discourse, in both cases, the result is a generalized violence of human rights and the employment of symbolic and physical force upon the lower groups of society in China by allowing the precarious work conditions and in Brazil by employing the police violence. Global enforcement endorsed by Brazil and passed down to the local spheres had led to the chain's fragmentation and dispersal. Today, those traders in Brazil prefer to buy goods from Chinese market in Sao Paulo, meaning that Paraguay is losing its role. The chain has been reorganized. So, selling products, hiring those excluding from social opportunities, promoting the ascension of some and the exploitation of others, new ways have been invented on the edge of the system. Thank you.